Hello, everybody. I know that everything that's going on in the world right now, man, it feels a bit crazy. Every one of us has been affected by what's happening right now. There's incredible change. And we're all wondering, you know, what's next? How do we get through this? What are, what's some of the best advice out there from a practical perspective, how to lead, how to think about these things? And so I asked uh, some friends of mine, people that have been on the podcast and in our community, just to come on and record some bonus episodes on exactly just their best thinking on how they're approaching this. And some of these conversations are absolutely, they're just so equipping inspiring and fantastic and we just wanted to share these with you uh, as just some extra from us and please if there's anything at all we can do for you don't hesitate to reach out john at eternalleadership.com or steve.writer r-e-i-t-e-r at rightturn.media so please get in touch with us we would love to hear from you and god bless you in everything that's happening right now All right, today we have a special friend on. I've gotten to know uh, Stephen Drum. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. I appreciate you having me on, John. And we've gotten to know each other over really the last six months. Stephen and I both are in a program called Heroic Public Speaking about how to really take the whole art and craft of communicating and speaking to a level where you're just creating a transformational experience for our audience. Because what I love was Stephen's heart for what he has in his message, because Stephen, just a little background on you, you enlisted in the Navy at 18 years old. And just as a side note, my dad enlisted in the Navy when he was 17 years old to go into World War II. So man, I got so much respect for that. And you ended up becoming a combat tested Navy SEAL. You were a master chief. So if people out there aren't familiar, that is the most senior rank for enlisted that the Navy has. You spent 27 years in the SEAL teams. And I can't even imagine the experience. You probably forgot more about leadership than most of us even know. Developing high-performing teams, bringing people from probably just amazingly diverse backgrounds, race, color, creed, economics. And you have to pull these kids together and immediately create a team that is mission-capable and so the stuff that you've learned that's applicable to today's world is probably absolutely epic. Actually, it is, and that's why we're talking today. So today you do public speaking, you do consulting, and you work with a lot of very large individuals or organizations, very high capacity individuals to develop that leadership, performance strategies. And what I love about what you're doing too, you, you go through the whole thing, right? The planning, just like you guys did in the SEAL team, right? You know, That's what's right. the goal, right? The planning, and then we got to prepare, then we got to execute, then we got to evaluate. And how do you do this at the highest levels? Because that, I think a lot of people, they understand the planning part, right? We kind of know what we want. And when it really comes to actually, let's, how do we lay the foundation to succeed? And then how do we execute? And then how do we see if we did good work? They don't know how to do it. And I know that, you know, uh, everybody out there listening, Steve and I were talking about, you know, you look at somebody 27 years in the SEAL teams, like, wow, that dude's just a rock star. But there was also just some incredible highs and lows in your career and times of just self-doubt and all these different transitions. So here's what we're going to dig into, everybody, just really talking about what does it take to develop that just that high-performing team 
you know, to really develop leaders, because that is something that Steve is really focused on. It's something I really respect about Steve. And what does it do as you're in kind of this leadership journey when you really face some of those times of doubt to be able to move through it? So with that said, Steve, I would like you to maybe go back to when you were 17, thinking about the whole thing and just kind of take us through some of your journey out of high school into the Navy, through SEALs, and then into business before we dig into some of the lessons you learned. All right. Well, yeah, for sure. I'll try to keep it as succinct as possible. But yeah, so I committed to join the Navy when I was in high school, when I was, I pretty much knew in some way, shape or form that I was going to be involved in military service. I initially thought, hey, I I probably want to, you know, get a commission because my uncle who was very, you know, instrumental in my journey towards the military, he was a uh, retired naval aviator. And then he went on to be a American Airlines captain. And he was very much towards kind of nudging me towards the officer route. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll go to college. I'll get my commission. Then the more I started kind of thinking about exactly what my goals were, my goal was really to be a SEAL. That's what I really wanted to do as opposed to being an officer and then a SEAL. And so I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to enlist. I'm going to go straight towards my goal. And so I committed to the Navy. And what, at that time, what was leading you toward being a SEAL versus other things that you could have done in your life? You mean within the military or just other options completely separate from the military? Yeah. What kind of helped you kind of for yourself land on, hey, this is what I want to do, man. I always gravitated towards that. I, I don't know, you know, there was definitely that sense of service and patriotism, which I think for many of us, we don't really fully realize that until we're already in and serving. You know, that's when we really, we go around the world and we see how other people live and we see what we have to offer, you know, and that really kind of galvanizes, I think, the patriotism in many of us. But I definitely had a sense of that. And as a kid, I looked up to the Vietnam veterans, the Green Berets, Special Forces guys, and you know, what they were doing that I just thought, quite frankly, was just really cool. And I wanted to do something like that. And of course, kind of with the Navy, with my influence from my uncle, it was kind of pushed me towards the Navy. And he's like, well, you know, the Navy, they have Special Forces units too. They're called SEALs. And so I'm like, all right. And and they're way better than every other service. No offense to anybody listening, but, <laughs> but Steve and I might be biased. <laughs> Everybody's got, everybody does, well, everybody does a slightly different task and I, I won't go out. You know, that's a good point. Actually, if you do look at it all, there's different strengths. And when you're looking at talk about a high performing team, if you look at some of the, the global threats, you know, you need to put together people with different kind of training. If you're looking at special forces, right? SEALs and Delta and there's probably force recon, different groups. Yeah. And I think pre 9-11, you know, you're in your 20s, you know, everybody wants to stick their chest out and everyone wants to say my training's harder, we're better, this and that. And then, you know, now we've been at war for almost 20 years. Every unit has gone out and done amazing things in the service of their country. And so Mm -hmm. it's just, we're all, honestly, I look at it as we're all one big special operations team that all brings slightly different culture, slightly different problem solving, you know, assets to the problem. So, I mean, yeah, that whole kind of who is better. I mean, that's for the young kids. That's really not how a lot of guys like us really kind of look at it these days. So here's a question for you, because I'm thinking, like, you're old now. Like, you're I'm like... so old. I know. You're like in your <laughs> 40s. But, you know, think about BUDS, right? You know, everybody, you know, when you think of SEAL training, you think of that, you know, the BUDS and the Hell Week, and we've, we're all familiar with that. And I'm just curious for yourself, right? This is, like you just said, pre-9-11. 
this is something that you're really interested in doing. That training, that buds back then, because this is pre 9-11, you're not focused on that. What do you think it was for yourself that allowed you to just stay in the fight all the way through buds, not ring the bell and just keep moving forward? The easy answer, the short answer to that is I was just more committed than a lot of people that chose not to stick with it, right? And that's, you know, I always say when it comes to your own performance, your own peak performance, your team developing high-performing teams, you know, it all starts with the level of commitment. You're just not going to outperform other organizations. You're not going to perform to what you're truly capable of if you're not fully invested into the task, the organization, and to whatever your mission is, right? As well as in the service of your customer. And so for me, I really, really wanted, I remember one time they were really hammering us. I think they had us on the beach. We're doing flutter kicks. And it's always one of those things where like you're working as soon as the kind of you know, the instructor turns his head, you kind of slack off for a slight bit to get a little bit of rest, right? And I remember this one guy, he comes up behind it, you know, we hadn't seen him and he comes up behind us and he's like, look at you all. He's like, if the people back home, if your family and your friends could see you underperforming right now, what would they think? That always kind of stuck with me. You're like, you know, you've committed to this. You've told people this is the goal that you have. And in you know, you're just going to turn and say, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And that was a, that was very powerful. But I think ultimately what kept me there, what kept me were the relationships that I developed with the people around me within my class and leaning into the people and realizing, you know, these are great people. These are great men that, you know, I feel at home here. These are people that I want to work with. These are people that, you know, I'm going to hitch my wagon to, right. And we're going to, you know, hopefully go on and do great things together. And I think ultimately that, there's relationships and it's the same thing, you know, in the business world, we may not always like the direction or the choices that our organization makes. We may have a leader that we don't feel connected with, but if we really lean into the people around us, that can really make the difference in our overall commitment, right? And we go to work every day because we see these people that we really like spending time with that we know, Hey, they've got our back. I've got their back. Okay that makes it worthwhile. And that's going to sometimes be the difference maker, right? And that, of course, you know, is stems from a strong organizational and team culture. Yeah. And I really want to dig into the relationship piece, but something you said though, because I'm imagining some of the guys that were to your left and to your right, when you're doing the flutter kicks and here comes the instructor, because he, he knows exactly what you guys are going to do when they think somebody's not looking right? In your response and the mindset you had was, you know what, this, this guy's got a point. You know what? I have pride in the effort that I'm putting out. And I bet some other guys had a completely different reaction. Like, oh, that guy was such a son of a gun, so to speak, right? You know, and I'm going to keep trying to do the minimum level, you know, effort so I don't exhaust myself, right? You have same input from somebody because sometimes that happens in business, right? We have a boss. I've had some bosses that have been incredibly demanding and he was probably one of the worst, most unpleasant people to ever work for. But now in hindsight, I realize I don't think I'd ever grown as a leader more looking at it with perspective than working for that one guy. Because everything that he actually did was to make me better and was for my best interest. But sometimes in the moment, I didn't feel like that. But what advice do you give to people that are in leadership roles out there in the world right now working in companies? about maybe the mindset that they have to develop 
so that they actually keep growing versus maybe become either bitter or complacent or kind of develop a victim mentality. Does that make sense? Um, it is much of deciding, you know, why are you in that role? Why were you put in that role as a leader? Is it because you thought it was your turn? It's a tenure type of thing. Is it because your organization recognized a level of talent in you and that's why you're going to be in that leadership role? And so it's important to really sit there and say, regardless of why I was put in that leadership role, I'm the one who's going to be in charge of making sure that the team, the organizational goals, that football gets moved down that field. And it's up to me to take an active role in my own personal development, as well as the development and the people that I'm put in charge of. And so I think it's, you know, first and foremost, you know, we've got to have a certain level of credibility. It means we're not expected to know all the answers to know exactly what to do at any given moment as a leader. But we do have to have the ability to sit back and analyze and be relied on to make a good deliberate decision. And a lot of times we can't do that if we don't effectively leverage the knowledge and the wisdom within the teams that we created, or even to look outside to mentors. And a lot of times, you know, there's an arrogance sometimes that goes into, hey, I got this. I'm a talented in this role. Now I'm in a leadership position. I was successful because I've done this. And now everybody else is going to be successful when I make them do, you know, A, B, or C. And really, that's not just the case. We have to sit there and be very deliberate in how we look at problem sets. We have to be very deliberate in making sure that we're leveraging the different skill sets and the different things that people bring to the table for two reasons. One, because they are going to come from a different, especially, and that's one of the biggest reasons that we, we say we celebrate diversity in the workplace is because we want people's different cultural experiences, their different upbringings to intelligently inform how we look at the world and how we look at problems to give us a different slice. And so when we really bring in people into the fold, you know, it gets them first to buy in. And second, it's going to give us different things that we can put in to try to consider how we may apply solutions in a different manner in which we've used in the past. And you only get that when you develop relationships and you only get those relationships when you develop trust. And so, you know, a college professor, I think he used to say, you know, trust is the currency of leadership, which, you know, without that trust, you know, you're never going to get the most from people and you're never going to build the strong high-performing teams. You shared something I think is really something I really want to highlight. You're an expert in something because I know I've done this, right? I had my way of doing things that got really good results and then I get promoted to be a manager. So my goal, and I thought it was right, was to get everybody to do it the way that I was doing it. It was very command control. It was very directive, but I also like to empower people. But So here's what I found myself doing was I was very directive And then I would start to let go of control as I started to trust my people. And oftentimes results would fall down because I had created this dependency on me telling people what to do. And then I would snap back from almost servant leadership to command control. I was going back and forth and back and forth. And I call that the schizophrenic leadership model. And it's not healthy for an organization at all. So when you were developing leaders and you had those people that were technically, you know, very competent or experts, and now they're transitioning now into having to be a leader. So they're, what they need to do is, you know, cast vision for what we're doing. 
Make sure people have the training that they need, the experience to do their job that you can delegate to them. And then you can let them go to go do their job. How do you help people? And what advice do you have for people that are leaders right now that are developing other leaders to help those new managers, those emerging leaders make that transition successfully? Well, I think, John, one of the things you know to be true is that in the military, we develop leaders almost immediately. And it doesn't mean that you're in a defined leadership role per se, even though like in, even in the Navy's boot camp, I mean, you, you'll have somebody, you'll put somebody, you'll have a laundry petty officer, right? You try mm-hmm. to put somebody in charge of something so at least they know what it's like to try to influence people, persuade people, and have some level of accountability for yourself and for others. And so we start growing that from the get-go. And I think where in a lot of cases, business sometimes makes the mistake of looking at somebody like you described, you know, just a few moments ago, they performed well in this role. I identified talent in that person, and now I'm going to thrust them right into the leadership role where the good organizations will start grooming people early on. All right. It's like the things that we would always do to develop leaders in the teams. Okay. Initially, I remember you know, early on, even in my first SEAL platoon, we would do, we were out in the desert in California and we're going through land warfare. We call it immediate action drills, right? Where you're patrolling along and all of a sudden targets pop up and they throw these grenade simulators. It's basically simulating a firefight and you've got to, to have certain, based on what the terrain tells you, you've got to execute certain maneuvers to win the fight against the enemy, even though they're just, you know, like made up targets. But you know, even in that training, I was given a chance to be the one who was executing those calls. And as one of the most junior guys on the team, as one of the most junior guys on the team. And it's not like I, you know, I did fine, but it wasn't like my performance was flawless, but I was given that opportunity. Right. And so these leaders that, you know, they need to ask themselves, they're like, what opportunities am I giving my emerging leaders in terms of growth? And we can only do that if we give them, you know, a chance to go out and to leave the nest, so to speak, and be allowed to stumble sometimes, right? You know, we look at like a, um, I always use the metaphor of a bullseye, right? If you envision like a, a marksmanship target, which is a circle of black rings in the middle, and then as you go out, the value diminishes of what those rings are. So then you have the white rings, right? In the middle is the 10, 10X, that's perfect, right? you know, if you were on the edges of the black, you're still killing it, right? You start to get into the white, well, okay, let's make some course corrections. And if you're completely off target, well, we need to put the brakes on, we need to now have a conversation about what we're doing, what we're not doing, okay? But within that play, within that black circle, you know, let's let people kind of stumble. Let's let people execute imperfectly because through that is that growth, And if you're constantly giving them one way to do things and then they don't do it right, they're just like, all right, well, I'll just wait for you to come tell me exactly how you want me to do it. And that's not how we, you know, stimulate creative solutions. That's not how we really develop leaders that all of a sudden are put in a position that they have no experience in. Okay. And they're like, all right, well, I don't know exactly what to do, but what I can do is step back make a very composed and deliberate decision based on the facts and based on how to think critically, right? And if we don't let people kind of have those growing pains to do that, then they're not going to be prepared to, you know, 
execute at a high level in those circumstances. And I'm guessing leading up to you kind of running that exercise as a junior SEAL on the, on the team when you guys did that immediate action drill, what do you think it takes or how should people approach preparing somebody? Because you were prepared. You'd had the training, you had the knowledge, you had enough experience, you had the tools at your disposal to actually operate in that environment. What do you think it takes to successfully delegate and give people stretch opportunities? Because if I just threw somebody in there and all of a sudden they're hitting off target or in the white and now I'm upset with them because they didn't make me look good because some people have fragile egos or you're, you know, coming down hard on them. But what I see oftentimes the leader hadn't done what they need to actually set that person up to do their best. That doesn't mean that to succeed because it's a learning process and they might not meet your level of success, but they have to be prepared so that in that environment, they have the best chance of success and learning possible. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, and I talk about this a lot, it's really kind of the bedrock of how I approach leadership team development, you know, peak performances is another thing that the military does well is provides that structure, right? It provides processes for, you know, you take me, like describe myself as the most junior man on the team, you know, and it's like, all of a sudden I'm all by myself. I've I'm cut off from my team and I've got to now, you know, now I've got to call for close air support. I've got to call for, uh, you know, reach out and get help. You know, I will be able to open up and I'll pull out this tiny little laminated card that has all of, you know, we call it a cheat sheet. It gives me a structure and a process in which I can operate. You know, when we, when we look at, hey, we go out on this combat mission and all of a sudden the mission takes a turn. Now we've got to completely come up with a really quick mission plan. We go by this thing called SMEAC, Situation, Mission, Execution, Admin and Logistics, Command and Signal, right? And that just is, that framework makes sure that we're considering everything that we need to do, right? And so I think processes are how we really get people to make sure that, okay, a lot of times we get nervous, we get, you know, overwhelmed because we don't know if we're considering everything, we don't know what to do next, all right? So let's, as leaders, we're developing emerging leaders, let's give them some framework. And, you know, an overarching framework that I kind of like to use is the first is intentionality, proficiency, agility, and accountability. With intentionality- Say that again. Intentionality, proficiency, agility, and accountability. When I look at a framework for either a team or a leader, and the first one, intentionality. Why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, not to get too military technical, but, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the term commander's intent, right? If I'm going out to do an operation, the commander, before we even start mission planning, will give us his or her intent, which means essentially, if you're going to go conduct an operation in this valley in Afghanistan, for several days. At the end of those days, when you're finished, I want the conditions on the ground to look like this. Within that are constraints, okay? Here's some things you can and can't do, okay? You can't go in and and go into, you know, violate religious sites. You have to bring so many of the local partner force with you so the Afghan populace sees that, you know, you have Afghan face on it. And so you have constraints. We can't do this. But within that, we're given the creativity, And we're given the latitude to solve that problem at the lower level, at the operational, at the tactical level, as we see fit. And so where I'm going with that is know why you're doing what you're doing. 
know exactly are my actions and behaviors in alignment with where my organizational leaders want me to go because they may I might not have that direct supervision but if I know exactly what is my constraints are and I know exactly where the organization wants me to go then that can provide me that framework okay I'm like all right if I do this no that's not really they're not going to want me to do this but this right here this behavior, this action, this definitely is going to get me within that scope, within that 10X, within that black ring, okay? And that's going to keep me on target. Next, proficiency, okay? As a leader, I need a certain level of proficiency, A, because, you know, you just have to have it, and B, because you have to have credibility. And if you're not proficient as a leader, if you don't have those rudimentary levels of proficiency, you can't speak intelligently in the area in which you're leading, then you don't have credibility. And so you need to make sure that as a leader, you're doing some professional development there. And as a leader, you're also responsible for the proficiency of your team. And so you need to make sure that you're allocating the capital towards getting them trained up with exactly the things that they need to devote time to, to get better at. When you get to agility is that we call like contingency planning in the military, right? We want people to be able to flex when things go off script. So we dial in, we what if, okay, if we're in a meeting and it goes this direction, what is our answer? And a lot of great, you know, organizational leaders will say, okay, we're in Q3 and we failed. We failed to meet our goals. We just flat out failed now what do we do? What are our next steps? Okay. Cause we always have to try to walk a process out if things go off scripts. And you know, I always say we can't necessarily anticipate every potential scenario, but what we can do is not get rattled when things don't go our way. We can just step back and take that beat and say, all right, based on the facts that I have, what is the best decision that I can make in this moment? How do they you, last, yeah. yeah, before we get into accountability, because I love this, I think this whole notion of intent, and that's really, I think, casting, you know, the vision for a team, like this is what we're, you know, if you sit down with an individual, you talk about, hey, here's your, you know, at the end of the quarter, right, this is what success looks like for you. Here's your personal development goals. This is where I want you both, let's say, you know, proficiency, you know, technical knowledge. Here's your goals around the team. This is what I need you. This is some of your strengths. Here's how I see you really helping this team operate better. Some things, you know, that we're going to work on. And also here's the organizational goals, right? We need to hit these numbers. I used to work for a public company. So at the end of every quarter, we had a, we had a report exactly how many deals closed, what the dollar amount was, what the equipment was. So everybody knew we had these kind of these operating parameters that we had to report, but everything kind of worked together for that. But, you know, stuff happens along the way. And I think this concept where you talked about being flexible, how did you, you know, as you developed really high-performing teams, help people really kind of embrace that, that actually failure or setbacks is actually part of this process of us getting better versus this almost being proof that either as a new leader, I'm not doing a good enough job, so I got to take all the control back. Does that make sense? Because I see a lot of people in this area right here is kind of a weakness for some teams. Yeah, I want to hit on something you said, and I'll get to that, but something you said about like 
you know, you have your different goals, right? You have your kind of personal goals, you have your organizational goals, you have your team goals. And I think a lot of times I'm in front of salespeople, right? And they live and die by those quarterly and annual sales numbers, right? And there's good reason for that, right? You have the different, you know, a lot of it's, you know, you have shareholders you have to answer. Yeah, and you want to max, if you're in sales, you want to max out your comp plan too, by the way. Of course. Being real, right? Right. But, you know, do we have an opportunity in those instances to have those stretch goals, right? You know, in some organizations, you know, they use like OKRs, objectives, key results, right? Which are those stretch goals, right? Which means that like, hey, these are lofty goals, okay? And, you know, I'm not going to have necessarily a super high percentage of hitting those goals, because if I hit them too easily, it means that I haven't really stretched. I haven't really reached enough. So it's good to have those two type of complementary goals, right? We have goals that we need to hit, right? And they're like, hey, we want to hit these goals. If we crush those goals, then awesome. You know, in sales, a lot of times that means that, hey, your, uh, your goal is going to only be that much higher next time, right? Sometimes it's a double-edged sword. But, you know, you've got to have those goals, but you also want to have probably in terms of personal development, those aspirational type goals. Okay. So you're not, because in a lot of cases, if you devote every bit of energy towards that next quarterly goal, you may be doing so at the detriment of long-term and overall growth and development. So I just wanted to throw that out. So your no. second piece, I'm sorry. <laughs> I No, I think that's, that, right? you know, that's a great part. Cause I remember when I was a sales manager, and I was going to get promoted and I was looking at my guys, my number one sales rep who I had on my team, and I'd been working with them on personal development, their personal skills, their relationships that they have with the team, with other departments. And I got to tell you, they were pretty average and he really hadn't made a lot of progress. Even though he was my number one sales rep, I never considered him when I got moved up to pull from my team into that role. I actually pulled somebody else. And I think just to highlight what you said is, yeah, you might be the best person in that functional job, but you also need to be looking at, hey, what are those skill sets I need to develop at that next level? Because nobody is going to take care of your career and your career path with the kind of focus and intention that you will. You might have a great boss who's really mentoring you, but at the end of the day, everybody listening, you're the one who's responsible for preparing yourself and when that opportunity comes that those people around you go, Hey, Steve is the guy we need to get. Steve has put in all this work. Here's what he's doing. So I think you're absolutely right. And it's something to really highlight that that's a really key part of personal responsibility. Well, you hit a good point there, right? You talked about the, and I think you said the gentleman you spoke of was your top rep. Is that? Oh, he was my top rep. He did as much as uh, we had a team of, 14 people, he did almost 40% of our revenue every quarter. I mean, not only was my top rep, but about head and shoulders above everybody else. Right. And that's a good point. You know, a lot of times when we look at, and I don't want to go down the whole, you know, I'll probably write an article about teams, right? The concept of teams, you know, it's a term we use, right? We just say, hey, it's a sales team. But if you say a sales team, right, you're a regional sales manager and you've got a team of like five or six sales reps within your region of the country are they a team? Meaning like, what is their level of collaboration towards that common goal? Or are they strictly just out there trying to only worry about their own numbers for their own, you know, compensation plans, right? 
And so I think, you know, as a leader, it's our job to say, hey, you're really talented. You're killing it. I want to teach you how to collaborate effectively, right? I want to teach you how to now start, you know, give that person an opportunity to run specific events and specific, you know, evolutions at your training conferences, things like that. Give them an opportunity to start learning what it's like to bring other people along, to share, and to start now considering the relational aspect of leadership as opposed to just the performance aspect of leadership. Yeah, great point. Now, accountability. How do you develop accountability? And I'd really like you to touch on, because I hear this all the time with the groups I work with, both in corporations and especially in the uh, federal government where we do a lot of training. As a member of a team, how do I hold not only myself accountable, but peers accountable? How do I create a culture where there is accountability across, you know, people that are at my same level? And then as a manager, creating that culture where, you know, guess what? We're all in this together. We're all holding each other accountable. One of the things that we use is probably one of the most stressful things that we do in training. And it's also the area in which we're most harshly judged is what we call close quarter combat, which is like room clearances, right? You go in, if you envision, we call it a kill house, right? You go in there, you kick the doors in, or you go through, you make your room entry and it starts off at two man, then it goes to four man, and then it goes to team. And then before you know it, you're clearing these large structures with your whole troop, your whole platoon. And you're shooting very close to one another. It's very high risk, but the stress doesn't come from that. The stress comes from the people who are on these catwalks above you looking down and judging you. And when you're all done, you bring it out and they have a big diagram on a whiteboard that basically replicates the, the blueprints of the house, right? And they'll go through and they'll be able to remember exactly who did what in each, like a hundred some rooms, they'll be able to remember who did what. And it doesn't matter what your rank is. If you did something stupid or you screwed up, we're going to talk about it. You know, as a leader, you know, back to that proficiency thing, that if you're really screwing it up, it's going to cost you credibility. But what it does is say, hey, everybody's accountable, regardless of your rank. When we go out there in the field, everybody's carrying their weight. You know, you go out there and you've got a heavy backpack and you're going through the mountains, you know, you're carrying everybody, regardless of, the, of their leadership role, they're carrying the same level of equipment. And so the good organizations will be willing to say, you know what, as a leader, I didn't get this right. You know, I, I did a workshop for one pharmaceutical executive team and the chief commercial officer, he kind of was like, you know what, I didn't get this done this year. He's like, I was not good enough in this, this, and this area. Here's what I plan on doing it about it. And I think that speaks volumes when you have organizational leaders that are able to say, you know what, you know, accountability starts with me and here's why and here's how. And so I think that's how you create that culture of accountability because if I can't hold myself accountable, then how do I expect the people below me to start treating accountability seriously? You know, and a lot of times accountability, like in the military, even it gets that bad rap. Somebody screwed up. I'm going to hold them accountable by punitive measures, or I'm going to put somebody on a plan, you know, because they're not performing up to standards. But really it's about organizationally taking the time to assess the things that we did well, the things that we did poorly. And I'm not saying that we need to be, you know, celebrate the failure to a ridiculous degree, but we do each and every one needs to be able to be forthright and confident as a leader enough to say, this is where I didn't do a good enough job. Here's how I plan to fix it. You know, and that's everybody 
embracing a culture of accountability is really, it sounds very trite, but that's. Well, no, but that's two, I think, huge value bombs there, Steve. The first one is as a leader, you need to get to a place where you can, you know, check your ego, be humble. And I'm a huge fan of what I call extreme vulnerability. Cause guess what? If you didn't like the CMO, if he, his whole team already knows he didn't do what he said he was going to do. Guess what? Your team already knows. If I said, I'm going to do all this, th this and this, and make sure that this is in place for you guys to go execute. I can't go blame them. That's actually going to make it worse because they all know that I actually didn't do what I needed to do. And actually just saying that to people like, Hey, you know what, you guys, I did or didn't do this. Will you guys forgive me? Here's what I plan on doing in the future. And by the way, I give you my team permission to hold me accountable to doing that. If you can get to a place where you're willing to have that conversation with your team, they will then start doing that to each other and to themselves. That's huge. And the other thing, and I think this is a huge best practice that you did, and we did it in the uh, fighter pilot community, and that is the debrief. There was no, when we come back from a flight, right? Because our whole motto was train like you fight and fight like you train. There should be absolutely no difference in either environment. And when we would come back, we had our HUD tapes, you know, for our, our cockpit recorders. We had all of our notes that we had on our note cards. And that is actually how we got better. And we used to do that, my sales team, we grew from zero to $100 million in sales in about two and a half years. And it was by completely using this concept, we'd come back from a sales meeting, and we would debrief so actually the team could hear it. And then we would actually at our team meetings, even pick a few of those key kind of ones that went really well, or ones that really went off the rails. And we would actually share all that. So we actually created kind of this environment where you know what, we were okay being, it was a safe place for us to, to share, almost kind of, you know, be a little bit humble because the entire goal was how do we make all of us better, more effective, equip us all and actually share what we're all learning as we're going through this. And I got, I think those two things together is a huge part because you talked about trust is the currency and building relationships because if it's just business as usual, and you're not focused on building relationships amongst your team members, who's a, you know, I was thinking about, somebody asked me this the other day, what would it take where people are excited, like can't wait to get up on Monday morning and actually go to work? And a friend of mine said something really insightful. He said, you know what? I would be excited to go to work if I knew I was going to work, to work with a team of friends. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of this attitude sometimes like, well, they're just my work colleague. Right? But if we can foster relationships and friendships to the extent that we can as the leader, that's only going to just serve every single person on the team. Well, it's that adage, right? It's, you know, kind of, I guess it's kind of cliche, right? We do business with the people we know, trust, and like, right? And we, we want to share our workday with the people that we know, trust, and like also. And, and I think you hit on it in terms of accountability. You brought up a great point. It's the people that work for you are usually not stupid. And one of the quickest ways that you can undermine your credibility and more importantly, undermine your trust is by ignoring or denying or trying to cover up your shortcomings or mistakes because they can sniff that out and they can do that. 
Um, and I like also, you know, what you said about, you know, and I think the aviation special operations community are very similar with how we do our mission planning and how we do our, our briefs, right? And we call it a, you know, or AAR after action review process. And I think this is one of the areas that I see that in a lot of kind of the business world is they just don't take this seriously because they're already on to the next thing. Like, okay, this went well. All right, well, we don't even need to talk about it. Well, okay, well, what went well today may not equate to success the next time we go to do this. And so I think it's like, you know, there's many different ways that you can do those assessments. But again, if we can borrow from the military is have a little bit of structure, have some criteria, you know, and I like to say philosophy, how are we going to do this? What does that look like? Does it look like kind of what you described where we create that little environment of trust where after this type of event that we go in, here's how we, it's a group led, it's a team leader led feedback session. And then like for my sales reps, Steve, they all knew that if I was in a meeting with them and the first thing we do in the car, I'd have them drive, but we would go through an entire debrief on the way back. Yeah. So by the time we got back, we would focus on two areas. Hey, what did you do well? Even if it just was a complete, you know, a bomb went off, right? But hey, what did you do well? And hey, what did we learn? I always tried to do it from a positive perspective. Mm-hmm. And then it was those things that we would pull out and say, is this something that rises to a level that we should share with the team where there's definitely some lessons learned in here that would make us all better, right? Mm-hmm. No, and that's excellent. You hit on, yeah. So with the philosophy the timing, like when are we going to do it, right? Because, you know, obviously it's perfect, right? You just get out of a sales call, you've been riding with your rep or whatever and you want to hit it up. You know, maybe the, the dynamics are different for different industries, organizations. And so, again, decide when are you going to do, like what is the timing after what specific milestone events are you going to periodically do this and then, you know, or episodically do this? And then at what point has it been too long since we've had a discussion on our uh, and assessed our performance? So maybe we need to make sure we're putting the stuff up on the calendar. And lastly, what are we going to focus on during these sessions, right? And I like what you said, right? What did we do well and what did we learn, right? And that's excellent. And I think, you know, the only thing is I would add to that is two pieces, right? When you're doing assessments, when you're giving feedback or when you're asking for feedback, you want it to be succinct, right? So it's got to be actionable, right? It's got to be succinct and and it's got to be actionable. So don't give me a bunch of feedback that I can't do something with, that I can't take steps with, okay? No, that's awesome. Now, and also everybody out there listening, I have seen Steve speak. It is transformational. If you're out there and you're looking for somebody for like an offsite with an executive team for your organization, your team, your company, I couldn't recommend Steve more highly, seriously, just with his incredible experiences. You can already hear him. We just touched on some things, 27 years in the SEAL team and now what you're doing out in business. So, Steve, how do people get in touch with you? How would they connect with you? Um, Easiest way is, you know, I'm on most of the platforms, but uh, if you want to reach out to me, reach out to me on my website. You can email me at steve at stevendrum.com. That's steve at S-T-E-P-H-E-N drum.com or you can hit me up on LinkedIn and I'm happy to have a leadership or team discussion. Even if you just have a question, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. And that would be well worth all of your time. And just, you know, as we wrap up, Steve, what would, you know, just thinking about this, right? Creating high performing teams, you know, relationships, developing leaders, what are just some final thoughts you'd like to leave everybody with? Know, again, that level of when you talk about intentionality and commitment, know why you're doing what you're doing, right? And sometimes I think 
we get to a point where things don't go well and we lose our sense of purpose. We are no longer, our behaviors and actions are necessarily aligned with what we set out to do in the first place. So sometimes just step out of that noise and look at where you're going, where you want to go, and are you doing the things that are going to get you there? Mm, Great advice. Well, Steve, thank you for your service, everything you've done for our country and for what you're doing now. And, you know, anytime you have anything coming up, a book launch, I know you're planning a book or you got an event or anything, just let us know. I'd love to have you back on. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. That was a fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah.